1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10 this morning. Uh, we've seen that uh, this letter is meant to help Christians stand firm in the grace of God and, and stay on mission in a hostile world. And fundamental to standing firm in the grace of God and remaining on mission together is uh, the need to understand our, our, our identity, our God-given identity as Christians and as the church of Jesus Christ. And so Peter has talked to us uh, already about our being born again uh, and this saving reality being fundamental to our identity as individual Christians or being born again by the Father through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been born again to a, a living hope, uh, an inheritance that can't be lost, and a salvation that is ready to be fully revealed at the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Peter's talked to us about some of the so what implications of this born-again reality in our lives. We're to set our hope on God. We're to be holy as God is holy. We're to live in a proper fear of the Lord throughout the time of our exile. We're to sincerely and earnestly love each other, and we're to long for that pure spiritual milk of the Word of God by which we grow up into salvation. All of those things, those responsibilities that Peter calls us to, are a consequence of this reality that we've been born again by the Father through Christ Jesus. Well, now in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, Peter's, Peter's talking about our corporate identity and how it shapes and determines our mission. And this identity that we share shapes our relationship to God and our relationship to the world and our community around us. Now, before we read the text, I want you to understand what, what Peter's doing in this passage. Here's, here's the structure, if you like, of this passage. Peter tells you about Christian identity, our corporate identity, and then he gives you a, a purpose statement. So this is who you are, and this is the implication of who you are. You are this, so this. And he does that two times in these verses. The first time is in verses 4 through 8, when he tells us that we are a spiritual house and a priesthood so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the first thing. Then the second is in verses uh, 9 and 10, when Peter says, Summary, you are the people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so taken together, these verses tell us that the church's corporate identity has both vertical and horizontal implications. We're a spiritual house and priesthood so we can worship God through Christ, and we are the people of God so that we can proclaim, as we'll see, with our lips and with our lives, the mighty saving deeds of God. 
So with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, read God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, picking it up in verse 4. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We see what Peter is doing here at the start of our passage. He's taking us to a construction site, giving you a hard hat. And he takes us to this building site where God himself is the builder. And God is like a master mason shaping these different stones to fit together as he raises up this temple for his own glory. The house he's building, Peter says, it's made of living stones. Isn't that a fascinating image? Of people who, as we'll see, have come to Jesus and are coming to Jesus together. He, he makes them to belong. He fits us together. And we're built together on the most important stone of all. A stone that is precious in God's sight. The cornerstone. You know, in the ancient world, the, the cornerstone was so, so important in the construction of an edifice. Because every other stone took its place and shape from its relation to the cornerstone. And Peter says, this cornerstone is Jesus Christ. On him, God is building a house made up of living stones, people made alive through Jesus Christ by the good news that has been preached to them. And so God is building this, this house made up of stones of all different shapes and all different sizes, but they are formed and fitted together to be one holy habitation for God. And they're constructed to form a holy priesthood who 
inside this spiritual house offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter gets all of this imagery, this description of the church from the Old Testament. That's why he goes on to quote Psalm uh, 118, uh, Isaiah 28, verse 16, before that, Isaiah 8, verse 14, to say to us, Jesus is the living cornerstone, chosen and precious to God, and we in him are living stones fitted to him, and as we're joined to him, we're fitted to one another to form a dwelling place for God where God is glorified in worship. So let's, let's understand, let's consider this, this first aspect of our identity in a bit more detail. That's the big picture, right? A spiritual house and a priesthood so we may worship God through Jesus. But let's, uh, let's look in closer detail at verses 4 through 8 and just ask, first of all, how does this happen? <laughs> how, how is this spiritual reality brought about? And Peter begins by telling us in verse 4, this happens as you come to Jesus. See that? As you come to him, a living stone. And everything that Peter goes on to say in this passage follows from this. It stems from coming to Jesus and receiving this new identity in him. Peter says something here that I don't want you to miss. You'll have to remember from last week, and if you weren't here, let me, let me tell you. In the last passage that we looked at, Peter alluded to Psalm 34, uh, verse 8, when he spoke about tasting the goodness of the Lord. Remember, he talked about how we taste the goodness of the Lord, and the means by which we do that is as we receive that pure spiritual milk in the ministry of the word. Well, what's fascinating is, as Peter goes on in chapter 2, he's, he still has Psalm 34 in mind. He's still relying on the vocabulary of Psalm 34. The Greek translation of Psalm 34 goes on to say, Come to him. Come to the Lord. And be enlightened, and your face will never be put to shame. You hear that? Come to him, come to the Lord, come to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's Peter saying? He's saying, you come to the Lord by coming to Jesus. You come to the Lord by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to him, you come to God. But, but keep, keep working with this. How do you come to Jesus, you might ask? I mean, how, how do we approach him? What's the nature of our coming to him? Well, Peter goes on to help us answer that in verses 6 through 8. Take a look. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And notice the language again. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were 
destined to do. Now, there's a lot going on in those verses, but just focus on this one thing here of how Peter's explaining to us how you come to Jesus. We come to Jesus by believing in him. We come to him by faith, by trust. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe. But notice as well, Peter, Peter mentions there are these other builders who reject the cornerstone. And so Peter is saying that there are, there are really two responses to Jesus. Either, either you, you trust in him or you trip over him. To, to use the language that Peter is working with here, either you, you come to him and believe in him or you stumble over the rock of offense. Those who trust him are being built up into this spiritual house that God is constructing for himself. And so a question we need to ask ourselves as we work through this passage is, have I come to Jesus? Have I come to Jesus? You know, you can, you can come to a church building without coming to Jesus. Have you gone to him believing in him? You know, we're a bunch of sinners. We, we remind ourselves of this. We confess this every week when we worship together as we confess our sin. I hope you understand part of the function of our corporate confession is together we're saying we are a bunch of rotten sinners. Guilty before God outside of Jesus Christ. But God has given his son Jesus to keep the law that we've broken, the law that we could not possibly hope to keep, and to pay the debt of our sin that we could never possibly repay. So God has provided the perfect Savior, and he's there for you and me, but we must come to him. We we must abandon self-reliance. We must give up on life lived on our terms, our own way, and we must come to Jesus and trust in Christ alone. And so we're, we're built together as a spiritual house, Peter's saying, as we come to Jesus, and that coming to Jesus by faith, you need to recognize as well, is something that we do continually. It's not a one-off kind of thing. The language that Peter uses here of, of coming to Christ is continual. You could translate verse 4 to say, uh, coming to him, or while you keep on coming to Jesus, the cornerstone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. One way of thinking about the Christian life, dear friends, is is simply in these terms. Peter is summarizing for you the heart of the Christian life. It's coming to Jesus every day. Every week, every year, every moment of every day, you keep on coming because you never outgrow your need for Jesus in the Christian life. You never get past your need of him. You never grow out of your need for Jesus. The Christian life is continually coming to him. But then notice, as we add layer upon layer here, this continual coming to Jesus inevitably has corporate consequences. It's as you come to Jesus 
that you are joined to other stones that are being fitted together to construct a household for God. So yes, you come to Jesus by faith. You must come to Jesus by faith. No one can do that for you. But when you do that, you should never think that it's just a you and Jesus thing. See, Christians aren't lone rangers. At least they're not supposed to be by God's design. Actually, the you in verse 4, it's, it's plural. We don't have a word in English to, to, to make that clear, but it's plural. So maybe we could say, as y'all come to Jesus, or I guess since we're near Pittsburgh, as yins come to Jesus, right? You yourselves, notice the emphasis in verse 5, the plurality again. You yourselves are like living stones being fitted together, joined together, because coming to Jesus incorporates us into the construction of a spiritual house. We are built together on the living stone of Jesus Christ, fitted, formed and fitted so that we together <laughs> create this spiritual house in which God is pleased to dwell. Isn't this a wonderful and awesome description of what, not only what it means to be a Christian, but what it means to be a part of Christ's church? We are all stones of different shapes and sizes. And to be sure, uh, when God began his work on us, we were rough around the edges. And uh, we're, we still have some rough edges that need to be smoothed out. But nevertheless, what is God, the master mason, doing? He's smoothing us out. He's fitting us to one another, stone to stone, joined together as the temple of the living God. You see, you can't, you can't avoid this corporate dimension of of togetherness in the Christian life without ignoring the Bible. You come to Jesus, the living stone, and you are made in him a living stone designed to be fitted together with other living stones. And this has, we could just take the rest of this morning and reflect on the significance of this for the Christian life and for how we think about the church of Jesus Christ, this spiritual reality, we're not going to do that, by the way, but we could. But this, uh, this, this spiritual reality, a house being built by God for him to dwell in, we need to appreciate, is a reality that is reflected and experienced and enjoyed when we gather together. When we come together as God's people, this spiritual reality is expressed when we come together and God takes up his dwelling among his people. That's, that's, what, that's what's happening this morning, brothers and sisters, as we worship the Lord. The church gathered for worship is God's ordained means of meeting with his people. It's so important for us to understand. The church assembled is God's ordained means for inhabiting the praises of his people. And I think it's, 
I think it's helpful to be reminded of this, especially in light of some challenges that have been created by the COVID pandemic. You know, when churches were not able to meet, remember, it seems like a lifetime ago now, going back to March of last year, but there was a period of time when we, we were not able to, to meet for understandable reasons. And what did we do? Well, we, we adapted, we, we tried to be flexible to the circumstances and continued to try to stay connected as best we could through things like live stream and online services. Um, and we're, I, I'm certainly thankful for that technology. I'm thankful for the way we were able to talk to each other, to pray with each other, to still have some sense of the ministry of the word in our lives. But, you know, talking, talking to other pastors and seeing what some other churches are, are going through, I, I think it's right to say that that season has created a, a problem <laughs> in the church. Or maybe it's exposed a problem, I don't know. That's something we could discuss. But some people now think that staying home and, and catching a sermon on YouTube or somehow online is a fit substitute for the gathering together of God's people. I think one of the implications of 1 Peter chapter 2 is we, we simply cannot replace God's ordained means of meeting with his people, which is when his people come together to reflect this spiritual reality of a spiritual house founded on Christ Jesus in which God is pleased to dwell. There is an inherent one anotherness that is a non-negotiable of the Christian life. We, we need each other, and God has actually ordered things that way. You know, we, we need to see one another. We need to hear one another's voices. We need to join our hearts and voices together in prayer. Together we need to see receive the, the means of grace that God has provided in his, his word and in the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We need these things for Christian growth and they're inherently corporate, not individualistic. And Peter tells us that the primary reason that we come together, there are a lot of reasons we come together, but he gives us, I think, the most basic reason. If you look at verse 5, we come together, verse 5, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're, we're living stones fitted together as a dwelling place for God. And that leads Peter to talk about what happens in that spiritual house. We're not just a place where God resides. We are a priesthood who offer sacrifices to God. And this is, this is one of the ways Peter is telling Christians to think about themselves as, as a church, as a congregation, as an assembly. Now you might be thinking when you hear the language of priesthood, hang, hang on a second, I thought, I thought most Protestants and especially you know, Reformed churches did away with the priesthood. Well, in one sense, that's absolutely right. During the time of the Reformation, the, the church sought to reform the, the offices of the church according to Scripture and, and got rid of clerical orders. So that there's no office of priest in that sense in the church today, 
And that's right. That's biblical. Why is that biblical? Because Jesus Christ is our high priest, who by the sacrifice of himself has made atonement for sin once and for all. So we don't, we don't need the office of priest any longer. But I think a sometimes forgotten teaching of the Bible is that there is a sense, which we might call the, the general office of priest. You've probably heard people talk about the priesthood of all believers before. And Peter is telling us that if you're a Christian, you belong to this priesthood, which is called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we offer these spiritual sacrifices, notice, in this spiritual house made up of living stones when, as those stones are fitted together, as the people of God are joined together. But what are these spiritual sacrifices? That's a question we have to ask. What are the spiritual sacrifices that this priesthood offers to God through Christ? It's pretty clear that Peter is, is thinking here in Levitical terms. He's got the book of Leviticus in view and the, the, the role of priests among uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. And one of the things we have to understand is that in the sacrificial system of, of Leviticus, there are, broadly speaking, two types of sacrifices. There are sacrifices for sin and atonement. As we just said a moment ago, those sacrifices uh, pointed to and anticipated uh, the, the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. There's another kind of uh, sacrifice the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving that were to be offered to the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And we need to, we need to realize this is, this is what Peter, I think, is talking about, that this is the task and calling of this priesthood in the household of God. Peter is relying on the book of Leviticus, of all books, the book of Leviticus, to tell us that the spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving are why God has brought us together and is building us up into a house for him to dwell in. You see, a fundamental part of our identity is that we are a spiritual house built up by God so that within that house we can function as priests, offering to God together the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving through the mediation of our great high priest and living stone, Jesus Christ. In the, in the foyer, I don't remember the exact language now. I should have looked at it on my way in. We've got, we've got a sign on your way in that the Trinity PCA exists to glorify God and something like we, ex, we, we seek to glorify him in three primary ways. And you know what number one is? Number one is we seek to glorify God and worship, and worship. We're not saying that's all the church exists to do, but we do need to say everything flows from that. Everything flows from our commitment to worshiping the God who made us and the God who has remade us and is remaking us in Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the first description uh, and, and our purpose, we're a spiritual house and priesthood so that we can worship God. 
Here's the second one, and I'm summing it up here to say we are the people of God. Of course, by, by God's mercy, we are the people of God so that we can make God known. So that we can serve as his witnesses in the world. Take a look again at verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, we are a spiritual house and priesthood with a vertical mission to worship God to his glory, and we are the people of God with a horizontal mission, we might say, to proclaim the mighty deeds of God. Peter relies, you shouldn't be surprised, guess what? (laughs) He relies entirely on the Old Testament once again to define our identity as the church of Jesus Christ. The people of God uh, made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women and boys and girls, all over the world, he says, are, notice, a chosen race. We've already thought about that language of chosen and elect back at the very beginning of uh, Peter's letter. Elect according to the, the foreknowledge of God the Father. I want to put your attention on the word race for a minute. First of all, you've got to appreciate that what Peter, Peter's drawing this from uh, Isaiah chapter 43, where God there announces himself as Israel's savior, and he promises to one day deliver them out of exile. They're in exile in Babylon. Now remember, how does Peter address these first Christians who received this letter spread throughout Asia Minor? He, he addressed them as elect exiles, And then if you turn to the end of 1 Peter, Peter sends greetings from where? From Babylon. They're being used as a metaphor, of course. But what Peter wants us to, he wanted these Christians to do, and God wants us to do, is to see ourselves in solidarity with believers of the Old Testament, a people in exile waiting to be rescued by God. Now the term term race Uh, refers to people descended from a common lineage, right? The, 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 The common lineage in terms of bloodline. But the common lineage of this new race, we need to appreciate, is not a matter of shared blood, but of shared faith. For those who come to Jesus believing in him, those who come to Jesus by faith, as Paul says elsewhere, are the children of Abraham. And Isaiah 43 tells us that God's purpose for this chosen race is that they might proclaim him. You hear that? The the reason he has gathered these people spread throughout all the world, the reason God is doing this, saving a people, is so that they may proclaim him. His praise. That's what Isaiah 43 says. So we are a chosen race delivered by God to declare his wondrous deeds. 
That's what Peter's telling us here. Another Old Testament passage that Peter's relying on is, of course, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, when Israel has been led by God to the the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God entered into covenant with his people, and he, he called them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here I think Peter is helping us to understand that our our bearing witness to the world, our relation to the nations around us is not merely a matter of what we say. It's not merely a matter of proclamation. It's also a matter of how we live our lives. It has to do with our conduct as well as our speech. And I think that's what Peter is seeking to draw out here with this language of kingdom of priests and holy nation. That becomes explicit if you look down at verses 11 and 12, which Lord willing will come to next week, where Peter's concerned about maintaining honorable conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations of this world. So think first here about a kingdom of priests, a priesthood. You know, priests in the Old Testament in Israel, they were, they were set apart and they were devoted to God. And Exodus 19 is saying that the nation of Israel as a whole is a a priesthood in this sense. They're set apart from the nations of the world, devoted to live before and unto God. And, And in that way, God's own image would be reflected to the world. That was God's intent in creating this new nation. And placing them among the nations of the world. That's why I think that the title Holy Nation only serves to reinforce this. We're a new nation among the peoples of the earth. Really a new humanity is what Peter is talking about here. A people set apart by God for God. And this also has all kinds of practical implications. Just think... Think with me for a minute about how this might play out. It means, as a holy nation, that God's people, relying on his mercy and grace, are to live distinct lives as citizens of another kingdom that is not of this world. And as a result of that, it's at times going to create tension friction for God's people living in exile here. That was certainly the case for the Christians Peter was writing to spread throughout Asia Minor. He speaks about them enduring fiery trials. You might know this, but if not, it's it's good to understand this, that early Christians were accused of being traitors and atheists. It's why you look at the earliest Christian apologetic texts written by Christian theologians and philosophers. They're making arguments that Christians are actually the best of citizens because they honor the emperor. They obey the law. They pay their taxes. They don't cheat people. They're faithful in their dealings. They're they're just. They're not insurrectionists. Those were the arguments of the early Christian apologists because Christians were being accused of being traitors of the empire 
and atheists. Now, why were they being accused of that? Well, because, well, not because they worshipped Jesus. I mean, what's one more God among many in a polytheistic society? They were experiencing this pressure because they were confessing that there is only one true God and this one true God is known and worshipped in and through Jesus Christ. And you've got to appreciate that in the Roman Empire, it was believed that social welfare and stability depended upon honoring the gods, right? Of serving these, these various religious forces. And so that also had implications for how people lived morally and ethically because you, you couldn't separate out the civil and the religious and the moral. They were all intertwined in the Roman Empire. And so what happens when you have Christian communities who are saying no to the idols of the Roman Empire and confessing Jesus Christ alone as Lord? Well, of course, that has direct implications on ethics and morality and how Christians conducted themselves. And the Roman Empire at times saw that as a threat to the stability of the entire empire. That is why they were at times called traitors and atheists. And this, this kind of tension, dear brothers and sisters, is something that we can see run throughout history down to today, we, we can see as God's people seek to live as a holy nation among nations, that there is going to be conflicts at times. We can see it in our own society today, can't we? I, I think it's right to say that we, we live in, in a nation, we're citizens, uh, most of us of a nation that has embraced what could be called the ideology of the self. Where the self is king. The self is, is, is really God. And increasingly, the, the governing authorities uh, su- support and endorse and even protect and de- defend the desires of the sovereign self. And that touches on all kinds of moral issues, doesn't it? When it comes to things like marriage, Sex and sexuality, uh, gender, marriage, uh, and um, schools. I mean, all, all sorts of things. There's no area of life that's left unchecked. But the people of God, Peter's reminding us, are a, a holy nation that is it's called to, to not conform to the ever-changing spiritualities and moralities of this present evil age. Instead, as recipients of mercy, they bow the knee in submission to King Jesus and to the unchanging truth of God's word. And Peter's helping us understand, he's going to go on to help us understand this more, that this is a fundamental aspect of the Christian community making God known in the world. And so, we have these two descriptions and this twofold mission that's vertical and horizontal, spiritual house and priesthood that we might offer acceptable 
spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. And we're the people of God so that we may proclaim the mighty deeds of God with our lips and with our lives. But finally, as I've mentioned a few times here, notice how Peter grounds all of this. Finally, in verse 10, in the mercy of God. You look at that. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, because we have received unmerited mercy, we can praise and proclaim God together. Isn't that wonderful? We can do it because of God's mercy. And we, we should seek to do much for the Lord and give ourselves to the worship of his name and the glory of his name among the nations. But we need to remember at the end of the day, no matter what we do, it's all the fruit of God's mercy in our lives. This is one of the ways that Peter wants us to think about ourselves as Christians in a Christian community. That we are a people who have received mercy. I, there's another thing I, I, I think we've got to appreciate. To really see what Peter is up to in this passage. Because surprise, surprise, guess what Peter's doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. <laughs> and this time... He's camping out in Hosea chapter 2. Uh, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and he's applying it to the Christian community. Now, in Hosea chapter 2, the Lord speaks of a time when his royal priesthood and holy nation would be restored. Because by that time, Israel had, had turned away from the Lord. They had gone the way of the nations surrounding them and indulged in all kinds of uh, pagan practices. They had forsaken the, their, their bridegroom, their Lord, and their role as a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so as a result, God no longer had a people who were living as his special possession among the nations. But God spoke through Hosea promising a future restoration of the people of God when the unmerited mercy of God would again form a people for his own possession who would declare his mighty acts that brought them into existence. And so through Hosea, God, Hosea, God says, I will show mercy to the unloved. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are the Lord my God. Well, brothers and sisters, do you see what Peter is, in fact, teaching us here? That this amazing promise spoken through Hosea is being realized in and through the church of Jesus Christ today. God's promised mercy and love are not limited to the people of Israel and, and Judah. His chosen race extends to the families of the earth. And so as you know, Isaiah we mentioned a little bit ago and, and now Hosea, 
Both of them prophesied of the regathering of God's exiled people. Now, some, of course, interpret that to simply refer to and be exhausted by uh, the Old Testament people of God physically returning back to the land of Israel. But Peter is helping us understand that that was always meant to be understood as a living picture signifying a greater reality that is currently being realized throughout the world in the church of Jesus Christ. That God's plan was always much, much bigger than a single people group being brought back to the physical land of Jerusalem and Israel. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles all over the world, is God's regathered royal priesthood and holy nation, his chosen race, those born not necessarily of Abraham, but all born of the Father, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter's saying we proclaim by our existence through, through our worship and through our lives the mighty deeds of Christ's resurrection and the praiseworthy character of God that's revealed in it. So friends, let's remember this morning who we are, who we are by nothing than the sheer mercy of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a spiritual house and priesthood so that we can offer the acceptable sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord through Jesus Christ. And we're the people of God so that together we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's reflect that light together in a dark world. Let's not get distracted. You know, folks today are talking about mission drift in the church and we can see it all around us. Let's, let's remember fundamentally this is what God has called us to. To be a spiritual house for God's dwelling where we worship the Lord together. And then together as God's people we seek to proclaim him to a lost and needy world to which we once belong. But by the mercy of God have been called a new people in Christ Jesus. And we exist to call other people in. So let's commit ourselves, brothers and sisters, to this mission of the worship of God and the proclamation of God among the nations. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the riches of your word and what you've been teaching us today. And we pray that by your word and by your spirit, we would be conformed to this word, that it would transform our minds, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of belonging, of being a living stone that's being fitted together as a place for you to dwell. And we look forward when all the ransom host of God will be together and you will descend from the heavens and you will take up your dwelling among your people in a new heavens and a new earth, and a new creation, and you will dwell with us forever. And we will surround the throne and sing praises 
uh, to you and to the Lamb. We thank you that you've called us to be your people, and we pray that you would keep us faithful in our calling and our mission to share the good news that you have given to us. Make us fruitful and useful in that work, for we ask all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.